This podcast episode is brought to you by Coors Light. These days, everything is go, go, go. It's nonstop hustle all the time. Work, friends, family expect you to be on 24-7. Well, sometimes you just need to reach for a Coors Light because it's made to chill. Coors Light is cold lagered, cold filtered, and cold packaged. It's as crisp and refreshing as the Colorado Rockies. It is literally made to chill. Coors Light is the one I choose when I need to unwind. So when you want to hit reset, reach for the beer that's made to chill. Get Coors Light in the new look delivered straight to your door with Drizzly or Instacart. Celebrate responsibly. Coors Brewing Company, Golden, Colorado. This is Blue Wire. Welcome to the Browns Film Breakdown Podcast. I'm your host, Jake Burns, writer for the OBR, writer for Cleveland.com. We have a great podcast for you guys today. Myself, Jordan Zerm, crossover breakdown of the draft announcement, as well as OTAs Week 2, and we will get to Gerald McCoy conversations with Trevor Sikama. But before that, I want to talk to you guys about Harry's Razors. So Harry's Razors has a great promo going for Blue Wire listeners. Go to harrysrazors.com to save $10 on the trial set, which includes five-blade razor with a lubricating strip, trimmer blade, rich lathering shave drill, and a travel blade cover. Harry's is fixed shaving by combining a simple clean design with quality and durable blades at a fair price. Harry's founders were tired of paying for these overpriced razors, so they redesigned the whole game, bought a world-class blade factory in Germany, and they've been making quality blades for over 95 years. So join the 10 million who have tried harrys.com. Claim that trial by going to harrys.com slash bluewire. Again, make sure you go to harrys.com slash bluewire to redeem your free razor for only $3. All right, and off we go with today's podcast. All right, welcome into another special crossover edition of the Blue Wire podcast. It is uh, Jordan Zern with The Rebuild, and once again, I am joined by Jake Burns of Brown's Film Breakdown. And uh, Jake, it's uh, it's cool to be able to do this a little more frequently with you, and especially during the offseason when there isn't always um, a lot of news to talk about. Although, <laughs> based on what we'll talk about today and just... In general, I don't know if there's ever going to be a slow week uh, surrounding the Cleveland Browns as we sort of tiptoe through this offseason. Yeah, you're right, man. I, I'm not. Uh, I, I think we're in what's called the oasis here, right? The, the the part of the season where you're just sort of trying to find things to talk about or find things to you know. And, and. But like you said, OTAs are in full swing, and this team is is in the public eye more than ever. And there's things to discuss, and we're going to discuss some stuff, you know, exciting stuff that you had found out a little bit ahead of time too, buddy. Yeah. So yeah, I guess it's a, it'll be a good place to start. I mean, first of all, I think just the news, just to touch on the news in itself, um, that that Cleveland gets to host the 2021 NFL Draft was officially confirmed by Roger Goodell today at the owners' meetings in Florida. Um, it's just a, a really cool thing, I think, just first and foremost, because they're, you know, they submitted a bid, I believe it was a year or so ago, um, to host the draft that I think Nashville eventually got, where um, they wanted to do it with like the first two nights in Cleveland, and then the last night of the draft was going to be in Canton, and the NFL was sort of like, you know, that's logistically, that's way too much going on, and it doesn't really make sense to have people sort of driving elsewhere in the middle of it, and, um, but I, I think that gave Cleveland like a little bit of a leg up in terms of, um, you know, securing a future year because they had sort of already submitted a plan, kind of got the feedback and then were able to sort of revamp it where it was just surrounded uh, or just with Cleveland. So I just think being able to have, 
you know, regardless of the buzz around the Browns, regardless of any of that, they could still be, you know, coming off a two and 14 season. They could still be bad. They could still not have Baker. I just think it's cool to all that stuff helps obviously get the draft here, but to be able to have it in a city that is as football crazy as Cleveland is that has the sort of history that's been lost for a while. Um, but really a rich history of, you know, the, the Cleveland Browns are one of the premier and original NFL franchises. And I think it's going to be a really cool thing to be able to have it back here. And I think it just so happens to coincide with the rebirth of the team as well, which is another really cool thing. But yeah, Jake, what were your sort of initial feelings um, when you when you heard that it was officially coming here? Yeah, I mean, obviously excited because it's such a it's it's become such an event, man. Like if you just sort of looked at. It, when when they when they did the overshots at Nashville, it's like it was like Times Square during the ball drop. It's just, it's just become, it has morphed into more than a draft. It has morphed into this celebration of football season halfway through the off season period, which is just bizarre to think about how how much people care about about the NFL, right? Like it's it's crazy to me that. I couldn't. I couldn't imagine people turning out like that for 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 the NBA draft. Like I couldn't imagine people turning out like that for like the combine is becoming a prime time event now. I couldn't imagine people turning out for, um, you know, for for the com for the NBA com- and and that that's not a knock on any other sport, but it's just kind of like where football is. There's this 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 chatter about football. Is it sort of fading? Is it is it is it becoming because it's so brutal? Is it becoming something that is fading out of the public eye? And we won't even see football in ten years. Like that's just not going to happen. People love it too much, and um, it 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 doesn't seem to be working in the opposite direction. It just seems to continually be growing and 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 continuing to take fan interest to another level. And the and kudos to the NFL. They they capitalize on this stuff so well. And Twitter has become such a great spot during draft season for just content and um, people studying the draft and all of these things that are really, really fun that help the time go by. Because if there was nothing to do, you know, from the end of this and the, the NBA draft, it just happens quick. I, I always compare the NBA because it's the closest one, you know, yep. um, in terms of popularity. But it's like the NBA draft is like the season ends and then boom, the draft's here all of a sudden. So it just all happens really quick. And it's like the, the NFL, there's these long months in between sort of their big landmark events. And there's a, such a buildup to the draft and what our team can become. Cause there's 32 teams right now who believe they can win the Super Bowl. Like their fans just think that way. I mean, there's some that are pretty realistic. We're not that good, whatever, but everybody thinks their team is better. And the draft is like this capstone of we get seven on average, seven new players uh, to help us and, and, and take our franchise to another level. And it's, it's become so important to people and it is it has become so important to the NFL. I would imagine that the NFL would tell you that the draft is probably you know, is it is it their second most important league wide event? You know, across from the Super Bowl. Yeah, I would think that's pretty safe to say. So, um, to get that in Cleveland, to get the NFL world watching Cleveland, and it could, like you said, Jordan, coincide with, hey, the Browns are actually really good, and it, if that means the Browns won the division a couple times in a row, like that would be really cool, and it would be sort of a the NFL is capitalizing on peak Brownstown interest of you know the browns are as, as good as they've been in the last 25 years and now we're going to bring the spotlight to cleveland with the draft and it just could all be very cool and it, it's really it's an exciting time for cleveland fans it's an exciting time my dad called me tonight with my mom and they're asking me about it and um you know they want to go everybody's going to want to go like everybody's going to want to go it is going to be 
packed. I, I just can't wait to see how they plan for how many people will be there because to me it's like the NFL draft is like the all-star game with baseball this year. How many people say the draft or you know the all-star game will be back in Cleveland for another 20 years. We got to go watch. Like How many people will think that way about the draft? It may not be here for another 15, 20 years. We need to go. And I think it will just be overwhelmingly packed with people all three days. Yeah, I think it's going to dwarf what you're going to see around the MLB All-Star Game. I think it's going to dwarf what you're going to see around the NBA All-Star Game that'll be here in 2022. And, you know, I, I it was really cool um, watching the television coverage of this past draft in Nashville with all those people on that main street in Nashville. Like, that was really cool. And I'm thinking to myself, like, man, it's going to be, like, double or triple that. Because not only it's not only just going to be... And I know people from other cities went to Nashville to watch the draft, but like Nashville is not really the centrally located place compared to Cleveland, yeah. where you know you have Steelers fans, you have Bears fans. I mean, Vikings Detroit. fans could come. Detroit is right there. Like anywhere it's in that scary. area around the Midwest, like is just people are going to flock there. And so you're not only going to have like crazy Browns fans who exist all over the country and, and probably, I mean, Browns, the Browns backers is one of the biggest sort of fan organizations and um, kind of global <laughs> kind of fan groups anywhere. And I imagine a lot of those people are going to come and then just Cleveland and Cleveland proper, but you know, all those places all over the place. And um, you know, Cincinnati people like just, it's going to be nuts. And I can't wait to see what the scene looks like. I, I, I was told that they're going to, they're going to try and have, um, and I'm not sure whether you know they want to risk having something outdoors. Although I imagine they're going to try to, because I know that um, that they want to try and do it the actual draft portion of it down by the lake. Um, whether that's near the stadium, whether that's sort of in one of the malls down there, or whatever it may be. Um, if you remember, like where the where the Cavs held. After the championship parade, they held the sort of um, all their players were sort of talking on the mic and talking about their experience of winning a championship. And that was on I always get mall B and mall C and mall A mixed up, but that was on one of them. Uh, it was just one of those big greens and the lake is right behind it and you can see the stadium. And um, so I wonder if that's where they're going to look to sort of set up and have something similar to um, Nashville where it's outside, but the stage and some seating is built underneath sort of an overhang. But um, I got to go to the draft in Chicago. I didn't attend the actual draft, but I was there the week of and I got to go. This was a few years ago. Um, and so got to kind of like walk around the little NFL fan experience they had set up near where the draft was going to be. And it was just so cool. You know, there's just shops and there's events going on, um, you know, players from, you know, I remember Von Miller was there. He was being interviewed by somebody. He was coming off <clears throat> the um, the Broncos um, playing in the Super Bowl. And so there was just, there's just a lot of stuff that's going to be going on. There's going to be a lot of NFL players there. There's obviously all the draftees will be there. So it's just going to be a super cool experience. And um, yeah, man, I can't wait. A lot of events happening in Cleveland over these next kind of four or five years, as we've seen people tweet about um, lately. So uh, yeah, a good time to live near Cleveland and be able to try and work your way into some of these events. Yeah. I mean, I just, I just imagine like, you know, the NFL has sort of avoided Cleveland for so long because yeah. because of what it, you know, what it's become and what it what it uh, is just sort of embarrassing and become a black eye for what it used to be, what it could have been. And, hey, we're really sorry the Ravens moved and won a Super Bowl and all that stuff. And like, you know, but we gave your team back. It's like I think that when people see what they become, even if the next two years don't go perfectly, even if they just sort of fringe it and wild card it or maybe make the playoffs one year or whatever, it's like. 
people that are so proud of Cleveland and so proud of the bread. This is this is as big event as it is globally. Um, like I said, outside of the Super Bowl. So I would just imagine that people for the you know the Browns backers, like you mentioned, Jordan, like. I, I, I think it's going to be overwhelmingly full of like people saying, I want the world to know how much we care about the Browns, and this is how we show them through the draft. And then, like you said, you bring in Detroit and Indianapolis and Cincinnati and Chicago and Pittsburgh, and all of those things can converge. And, there, you know, there's just – there's Columbus. There's so many big cities of football fans that will just say, I got to go to the draft. It's never been this close. It was in Chicago – it was in Nashville, but those aren't close. Like right. this is an hour, two hours up I seventy one. Like I'll yep. be there, man. I gotta be there. I have to see this live, even if it's not a great live event, which it's really not. Like it's you know, it's you're you're sitting around for ten minutes between like you. Know, you, you get what I'm saying. It's probably not the most ideal, perfect live event to go to, but it's sure. an experience that I think they'll want to sell, and uh, you'll sell it to your family. And yeah, I'm excited, man. And you, great job, kudos to you for getting that out early and being on top of things and. Uh, um, yeah, just it's it's cool for uh for everybody involved with Cleveland and everybody involved with the Browns and and hopefully they you know the next two years they build that excitement and it becomes just like an overwhelmingly uh, positive event and I imagine it will be. Yeah, really, just sort of wild kind of series of events and you know I got a I got a text yesterday um like around like I don't know it was like four thirty and um with you know the most sort of concrete wording just like hey um passing this along to you uh the 2021 draft is coming to cleveland like that was the initial text and i i had i had known that that morning and i um i think i posted this article to uh twitter but kevin Kleps, who does a really good job for um cranes cleveland kind of doing like cleveland sports business coverage he had written about in the morning that there was a lot of kind of positive momentum um kind of rolling towards Cleveland's chance at hosting the 2021 NFL draft and that um, people sort of were expecting that maybe, you know, it would actually happen. And so I remember I'd read that that morning and then I sort of get this tip from somebody that I obviously trust very closely. And um, yeah, so, you know, after kind of poking around a little bit, it was like, well, this there's a lot of signs sort of pointing to this and this person's, you know, kind of the language they used and, and level of trust I have was very confident in it and I you know kind of was like all right let's go with it but it was still something where it was like okay I'm probably have to wait till tomorrow to figure out if this is 100% true or not so it was a it was a weird 24 hours of just being like what if I got the year wrong or like what if I uh what if it's not happening what if something changed at the last minute and so you know because like today I was at the Indians game today in the afternoon and like I'm kind of just checking my phone in between innings just to see if like the official announcement had come or anything like that but like the People, a couple people retweeted me today, and one was like Diana Rossini, who's like a major NFL reporter for ESPN. And I'm just like, oh God, please let this be right. Or I'm just gonna be, people are gonna be roasting me for weeks. I'll have to shut down my account or something. But um, it was kind of fun, like looking back on it now, knowing that it was like it was good information, and um, I sort of went with my gut with it, and it and it worked out. It was uh, it's fun to look back on, but man, I was a little bit of a wreck today, just waiting for that announcement to come out. <laughs> Well, between Odell and this, man, you're on a streak, so people are expecting you to know exactly the day in which Gerald McCoy will sign with I Cleveland. I know, that's, so, that's next. I am texting Gerald yeah. as we speak, so we'll see. <laughs> no expectations or anything. <laughs> um, but yeah, man, so yeah, it's going to be really fun. Um, it'll be fun. Hopefully you and I can sort of, when that when the draft comes about, we are we are still in positions to be able to kind of cover this team and go and, and bring people content from it, but that should be a lot of fun. But 
You've gotten to um, spend a couple, uh, last week you were at uh, NOTA, and then uh, today you were at OTAs as well. And obviously, uh, if you're not following Jake on Twitter, you need to rectify that. Um, and, uh, you know, posting some good videos of, of work the guys were doing. Now, obviously, there were um, a handful of guys missing uh, missing today, which you can kind of speak about who wasn't there today. And obviously, people love to talk about Odell Beckham Jr. not being there, but we won't get to that quite yet. But Jake, just from the two, I know it's only been two practices that have been open to the media. Um, but for you, what has sort of stood out to you in Berea when you've been able to get out there? What What's kind of jumped out to you uh, in the couple of days that you were there? Well, I, I, I can't say anything crazy has jumped out. Like, I, I feel it's evident, it's very evident that Baker Mayfield is in year two mode. Um, and he's just he's different. I, I think that that's that's pretty obvious in terms of what you would expect him to be at, like growth, maturity. But you can tell that it's his team. Like you can tell the pl- the way the players look at him. You can tell the way when anything happens offensively, he's like boisterous and his chest is puffed out. Like the first OTA, Lindsey Pipkins and and Derek Willie's got into a little bit of a locked helmet situation and they're going at each other and and Baker's the one hollering from the offensive side of the football like it's just it's just abundantly obvious that the whole team and the whole franchise is sort of like in the palm of his hand and that's that's cool he's 24 like it's everything that you want and you can tell that this is something that he's lived to do and um you know I haven't thought he's been overwhelmingly sharp the past two OTAs but that doesn't, you know, it's it's it doesn't mean – you mentioned a minute ago who's been there, who hasn't. I, I haven't seen – when I've been there, I have not seen Odell. He has only been to one of them. Uh, I have not seen uh, Jarvis Landry either. And then uh, also today – well, the first one last week, they were without Higgins, who looks like he's nursing something with the calf. He was back today, but Callaway was out uh, today. So it's just been, you know, it's a pat like Blake Jackson's working a lot on the first team and like Ratley just it's it's a it's a mixed bag wide receiver group wise right now, which is fine. It doesn't mean anything. It doesn't matter. It's good that those guys are <clears throat> excuse me, it's good that those guys are getting work, but it's it's just a mixed bag offensively. You obviously have two extremely talented running backs, so seeing Kareem Hunt in person has been really um you know, you go into it with an expectation of like that's Kareem Hunt. He's had a really good career so far, but like seeing him up close you understand that guy is a top five running back in the NFL. So like they get into one-on-one situations with the linebackers and you can just tell the way he runs routes and how comfortable he feels, um, you know, in those situations and then out of the back, you can only tell really so much about the run game because they're wearing, you know, they're in shirts and shorts and, you can't really get a great feel for it. And even when you're on, as you know, you, we, we've been there together at the same time. I, I, I'm not even sure that I want to this year stand on the sideline during practice. Like, I want to try to perch up somewhere because yeah. you can't really see much on the sidelines. Like, it's just, it's just, there's a ton of people on the sidelines. Like, you can see things. Like, the biggest thing I'm trying to take away is guys who are in certain positions, but like, I can't really get a great feel for what's going on in terms of play by play. Like, what is the tackle looking like? Uh, how does Miles Garrett come off the edge? Like that stuff, you can't get a great feel for all the time unless your angle is perfect. So I would prefer to be up in a tower watching it, or at the top of the bleachers when training camp starts watching, because you can, you can get more, um, you know, from team sessions and stuff than you can just being like right up on it. So uh, that'll be interesting to me in terms of trying to figure out how it all shakes out because they're just a mixed bag. Like today, Miles Garrett wasn't there, Olivier Vernon wasn't there. I mentioned Callaway. 
Landry and Odell weren't there. Duke has not been there at either of them, and I don't expect him to be there until the word mandatory is attached to it in June. And then um, I feel like somebody else was missing, but I can't think of it off the top. Morgan Burnett was out with a little uh, – a little. I think he had an ankle. It was bothering him. But, yeah, I think that the biggest thing – there's two big takeaways for me. Um, the right guard situation. So the right guard situation is now something the Browns have to figure mm-hmm. out. Uh, due to the Kevin Zeitler trade, and like I, I, I'm, I tweeted out something about it tonight. Like I'm overwhelmingly yeah. positive about all of this. Like I think, I think that no matter what happens at right guard, I'm fine with what happened there because you traded Zeitler for Olivier Vernon. I think that's a win of a trade, just in terms of positional value and how a guy helps. That's fine. I get it. But the selling point when they made that move was, and this is not just from you know, people who cover the team, but it was John Dorsey and like the whole crew was we have Austin Corbett who's ready to go and a guy we drafted and we think he can play. Well I was I found it very interesting that he's splitting first team snaps to an extent that first OTA did that that Wednesday of last week. He was splitting like seventy five twenty five with um uh, Kyle Kalis, who, if 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 you, if you don't know that name, he was a Michigan product. Uh, I think he was a St. Ed's guy, I think. Okay. I could be wrong. He's a Cleveland kid. I mean, he he had a big fiasco. He committed to Ohio State and then backed out of that commitment to Ohio State and really drug Ohio State uh, in that process. And you know, he said he was going to prepare to beat them. And he went 0 4, which is sort of the status quo of late <laughs> That's how for that Michigan, goes. Yep. Uh, Ohio State. Yeah, and, and you know, so he embarrassed himself. And then it was really before Michigan fans would tell you that their offensive line was playing well. And then they got Ed Warner, who's um, you know, who's Ohio State's offensive line coach during some of their best runs with Ezekiel Elliott. Not a great coordinator. I wouldn't call um, Ed Warner, but he was—he's a—he's a damn good offensive line coach, and then they improved those things over the last few years with Warner. But um, so anyway, Kalis goes undrafted. I think Washington picked him up as a UDFA, and then he eventually came to Cleveland. He was on the practice squad. Actually, he played one uh, professional snap in two years, and he's today your entire practice, your right guard um, with the ones. He's playing over uh, recently acquired um, Eric Cush, right, and Brian Winsman. And those guys are running second team. And then your second team center was Austin Corbett. Like to me, and as I'm talking to Doug Marie, who I talk to a lot of practice because we just sort of have a way of bouncing ideas off of each other. It's like if this guy was your right guard, he would be playing right guard every opportunity he has. Because I even asked Joel Batoni after practice, I said, you know, it looked like Kalis is getting the right right side snaps. Like, is that something we should expect it to be moving around? And and Joel mentioned that they're going to move some people around. Well, he first had mentioned that it's a new position entirely for 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 Corby. He's never played. He played some right tackle at, at Nevada, but he hasn't really played on the right side of the line very much. So he's now taking on right guard. And it just to me, I found it weird that like if this guy is your plan, like he is your rock solid right guard plan. You don't give him an entire day with the second team center position, like, like just you don't you don't give Joel Batonio a different day doing something like you don't do that. So it is a concern to me, and it's a concern because you're playing a UDFA right now with your first team, which it could all work out. Like if you're a person who believes in like ignoring the process of what good processes and like well the result worked out, then that's fine. But I'm not that way. So like. I look at it as are they they mitigating risk here? What's going on? What's the process by which you're going to find your right guard? And I just I think it is an area of concern. Again, I am I am cognizant of what the calendar says and, and that it is May, but to me the signs aren't positive for Austin Corbett. And that and and and, and some people jumped down my throat and said, well, 
he's eventually going to be the center. Like, that's what he's going to do. Yeah. Okay, that's fine. But that means he's going to sit another year. Right. And that's two years of a rookie contract wasted before a guy even finds the field. Or if they're going to, air quotes here, cut J.C. Treader, some people think that's a thing because it felt like Bleacher Report grabbed that a few a few weeks ago. So I don't I don't foresee that happening. And if their process is, is to take away Baker Mayfield's center and right guard from a really successful half of last year – where everything clicked up front, I think that is a very risky move if they want to cut J.C. Treader, which just seems crazy to me to remove two of the five pieces that were really the more solid pieces in front of him. So if that's your plan, that's an even worse process plan to me. So I don't know where it sits. I do know what I see. I'm only going to report what I see, and if I see a UDFA who has one snap playing over the guy at right guard who we all have sort of planned was going to play, that is an area of concern to me yeah. and something that fans should pay. Now, listen, I get it too. Like this is um, this is we're concerned about the right guard position. Like that's good. Like they 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 haven't they they don't have to worry about defensive end anymore. They don't have to worry about quarterback. They don't have to worry about wide receiver. Like all of those pretty important positions have they have solved. But they're still like this is not a team. This is not a roster without fault. I'm not being negative. I'm not trying to to bring down the optimism, but I'm telling you where I'm concerned about their offense because you can find weaknesses. NFL teams find them all the time, and if you have a really big issue at right guard, that makes a shorter quarterback trying to find passing windows cognizant of where he has issues coming from all the time, and if that's a position of issue, that's something to pay attention to. So I will pay yeah. a lot of attention to that. I personally think it's the biggest story right now for this entire – like I'm not worried about guys not being there. Yeah, guys, guys, guys will be there when they're supposed to be there. They're working out. I, I have no issue. I've seen Miles. I've seen Olivier. They look great. Jarvis look great. Odell posts his his workout videos all the time. He's in shape. It'll be fine. All of that stuff will work out fine. But this is a story. The right guard issue will continue to be an issue until we don't think it's an issue, and you prove it with somebody that you trust playing there. And um, I think it's something that is really worth monitoring. Um, but yeah, that, that's where I'm at with it. Right guard offensively is like the the spot that I think we have to pay attention to how they figure that out. And like I said, they I could go back next week. I think we go Thursday for media next week, and it's and it's 100% Corbett, and that's that's fantastic. But it's like, why would it ever be acceptable for a guy to not play right guard an entire practice session? You know what I mean? Like this isn't an open gym. The coaches take OTAs very seriously. They, they they take the drill. It's it's run like if you guys haven't been to an OTA, it is run like a regular practice. It's it's come out, talk through specials, stretch, indie period, long indie period, um, either one on ones or inside run or third down drills like you always see teams do um, in team. Spe- huge special teams period. Get back together for another couple teams. That's how every single training camp is run. That's how every single practice is run. So this is a uh, a, a really it's a practice a full-on practice without shells shoulder pads so this is not like i said this is not some backyard football thing that they all get together and just throw things against the wall and hey let's just play him here and him there and let's just see what happens no this is organized structured stuff so they have something they're doing i did not get a chance to ask monk and i really wanted to but joel batonio came out and i wanted to talk to him so um, I will try to fire that question to Freddie next week of just pretty point blank of why is Austin Corbett not getting right guard snaps? Because I want to know. Um, yeah, and it, so- it, it's it's reminiscent, too, of, um, I mean, you know, slightly other side of the line and a little bit different. But, I mean, like we, you know, people that sort of 
are like, oh, it's going to be fine. And yeah, he's going to be um, center his position he's going to play anyway. Or, oh, it's only OTAs and he'll, you know, he's going to get reps there in training camp, whatever. But I mean, it, like we, the Browns went through this situation um, with their left tackle last season when they were trying to replace Joe Thomas. And it was all over the map when they, you know, they put Joel Batonio over there for a little while. And then they were like, oh, well, you know, what about Desmond Harrison? And then all of a sudden it was Desmond Harrison getting reps over there. And then they threw him in. And, you know, he does okay, he does fine in, in the opener and then slowly sort of tapers off since then. And then before you know it, it's like, oh, he's actually, we can't play him there. we got to put in Greg Robinson. Like, And that had a negative effect on the offensive line, especially in the first half of the season. So when you're trying to find somebody that um, is going to hold down a very important position, I mean, all all the positions on the offensive line are important, but especially when you're trying to replace somebody like a Joe Thomas, Joe Thomas or now um, a Kevin Zeitler, like, that stuff matters, and those reps matters. And, um, yeah, if if Corbett – I guess part of me is like, okay, well, it's better to find out early, like, oh, man, maybe Corbett can't play right guard. And, and so there's a benefit to that, whereas last year the Browns sort of had no idea what they were doing. They were just throwing stuff – throwing players into that left tackle position before they eventually settled on Greg Robinson, and he gave them a little bit of stability there. But, like – so on one hand, yeah, great. If if Corbett's not going to be able to do it, and you're and you're going, you already sort of know that in OTAs, and you're putting him with the twos and um, having him place get most of his snaps as a center there. Like, okay, fine. But I mean, it's a concern because, like you said, like having an undrafted free agent, there's just no way the quality is going to be even close to. Um, what you were getting from from Kevin Zeitler, if I, and obviously you know we don't know yet what the that situation will be as we kind of go through the off season into training camp. But yeah, like it's a it's a big deal, and it's a big deal because Corbett has been sort of this polarizing guy where you know he was inactive for a lot of games last year. Um, you know they went from sort of as they do a lot of players, whoever they draft, they talk him up after they draft him. Here's why we took him. This is what he can do. And then when you know you're seeing him inactive and he can't get on the field, it's there's a little bit of a disconnect and it sort of just seems like this disconnect has kind of continued on through OTAs. And so I think you're hundred percent right when, you know, it's a story, it's something to watch because this is a big deal. This is Corbett was, you know, I think you make this trade regardless of who your right guard is and regardless of who you have backing them up. If you're ending up with uh, Olivier Vernon and, you know, tangentially also Odell Beckham Jr. Like you're going to make that trade, but if they thought and they want Austin Corbett to be that guy that gave them a, a bit of a safety net to make the trade and then it's not happening, it's um, it's certainly going to be something to watch. I also, Jake, wanted to ask you about um, something you, me, and um, Brennan Leister were sort of talking about on Twitter today, too, was some comments from um, defensive coordinator Steve Wilkes as he sort of talked to you guys today. And he just had an interesting quote. And you can probably give it a little better context because you were there and it's hard sometimes to parse through what the tone of things people say and what they mean um, when you're just seeing it on Twitter. But he was talking a little bit about Olivier Vernon and he had a quote where he essentially said, you know, he's great as a pass rusher, but I also want him to sort of focus on on rushing the passer. And that got sort of a big groan out of everybody on Twitter because I don't think there's a lot of people that want uh, the Browns to spend most of their time uh, uh putting Olivier Vernon in uh, run-stopping situations. I think he's a guy you sort of let loose and, and get after the passer. Um, but but obviously, it sort of leads to a bigger question just about what you've seen from Steve Wilkes and sort of defensively. You know, he he caught some heat a little bit in Arizona last year because he played five DBs so often that it even felt like in a lot of, like, 
when they were down big and the other team was just running the ball down their throats, he just w- was not flexible and just kept going with, with five DBs and would not play his base defense a lot. But um, I, I think there's positives and negatives to that, obviously. But what did you think of the comments about Olivier Vernon, the, the pass rush slash run stop thing? And then what have you just sort of seen from him in terms of how he might be using his personnel? Um, I know it's obviously only two practices. It's difficult to get a full view of that. But from what you know about him, you've done some writing on him um, when the Browns hired him. And, and just from what you've been able to see while you've been there. Yeah, yeah I mean, I, I'm not alarmed. I know some people were alarmed by that comment from Wilkes about things they need to improve is sort of their corner and run game fits and – uh, general tackling too. I know this is sort of buzz things that have come up. Like I get where he's coming from. If you look at the Browns defense last year, stopping the pass was not a big issue for them. They were, they were the top half of DBOA and pass defense. They created interceptions. Like they did fine in that department. So if I'm coming in as a coach, I would be looking at what did we struggle with last year? We struggled tackling one of the worst tackling teams in the NFL. And we struggled to stop the run consistently. And so He's just in that situation. He was just answering what he wants to improve as a team, and that that, that those should be obvious things. Like they they would like to stop the run more effectively, and um, you know, and that, I I don't think that for him, I don't think that means sacrificing stopping th- teams from throwing the football. Um, but I just think that those are things he was speaking to in terms of how do we get better what do we need to improve upon here's what the stats told us here's what we need to do in in, in a a better fashion and that that to me wasn't alarming like i get it you want to stop the pass in modern nfl i'm sure he knows that um and uh he even addressed it kind of saying i know that this is a passing league but you do you do have to be able to be at least you you have to be at least respectable against run like game situations dictate throwing you talk about teams that are you know the the teams that well the, the best teams in the league don't necessarily stop the run all the time yards per carry blah 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 well that's because teams aren't really running the football on them all too much because the better teams in the league jump out on teams pretty often more often than not they're jumping out and then it's like okay we're in pass defense mode teams are going to run the football on us we'll allow that to happen because what does that mean clocks running time's turning so like that is the thought process there so i get where he's coming from and then you know like olivia vernon i just wrote on those guys last night him and miles like olivia it it, this is another concern and i i put it i put it in writing like if you're looking at defensively um olivia vernon had uh, i don't have the numbers specifically in front of me but i spent ridiculous amount of time researching this stuff and pro football focus helps like crazy I think he's had like 5,600 professional snaps between Miami and New York. He's only played about 540 of those on the left side. Um, that is the left side defensive end, or if you're from the offensive perspective of the quarterback, it's on his right. Um, and then Miles Garrett only played seven snaps his rookie year on that left side, and then uh, 84 his second year. So he's only played 91 snaps his entire uh, two-year career playing that side of the football too. So you have two guys who have – cumulatively not played over 10% of their professional snaps. Like Miles has played like 1,200-ish professional snaps. Uh, I think I could be wrong on that number. I got to look at it. No, it was more than that. He's played like 1,600 professional snaps because he played over 1,000 this year. Um, Anyway, nonetheless, you're looking at two guys who have predominantly played right defensive end. And the responsibilities shift a little between the right and left defensive end because typically teams are run strength to the right pretty often. Most teams – run with most guys who are right-handed. They feel more comfortable running the football to the right. There's a balance there. I get it. But that is typically the left defensive end is an edge setter guy. So I went back and looked like Olivier hadn't had a season with more than 75 snaps 
rushing off the left side. And that is rushing off the left side in terms of you could be a stand-up end, you could be a hand in the in in the dirt defensive end, or you could be like a defensive tackle or a left outside linebacker in a three-four scheme like Olivier played a little bit of. Uh, in New York, they played them some three, four stuff. So I just looked at any time they came off the left side, whether run or pass, if that makes sense. And neither of them have played much. Now, Miles Garrett was uh, pass rush productivity grade. Pro Football Focus tallies that just sort of how effective you are at getting after the quarterback and the results of which those plays you do. He actually led the entire NFL rushing from the left side. I think he had 57 rushes, so he had like a 12.5 pass rush productivity grade, which was best in the NFL for anybody above 50 snaps, pass rush snaps on the left side. So there are positive things uh, for both of those guys, and I thought uh, I think Olivier in 2016 had a stretch, like a five-game stretch, Jordan, where he was playing for some reason opposite Pierre Paul. Pierre Paul was pretty much always the left defensive end, and he was the right defensive end. For some reason, they flip-flopped it. I don't know why. I'm not going to go back and dig into research on that, somebody writing on it, but he, he played predominantly coming from the left side, and I use that as the biggest part of the sample size. So he's not as effective. Like Olivier uses a really good club swim move and, and, and rip move, and he has really good bend off the right side. I don't think he's as aggressive, as quick in those moves he uses off the left side. I just don't think it feels natural to him. Yeah. And then and then you have Miles, who is, is obviously good wherever you put him, but it is an adjustment for him coming from the opposite side where he has not played a ton of throughout his career, including Texas A&M. So we talk about things that could become an issue. There is a little bit of are both of those players as good coming off the left side? We asked Olivier that question last week about alignment, and he said, hey, man, we're going to rotate it, but it's not a good question for me. It's a better question for um, better question for Wilkes. It's going to be a game plan thing, and that's fine. That's cool. I think that's great. You know, Opposing tackles are going to have to plan for both of them, and what do they do? But I'm just – from what I've seen, I don't see a guy – Vernon's still very good off the left side, but I don't think he's as comfortable moves wise as he needs to be. So I, I think there, you know, we got 10 clips or so just sort of looking at what he does. He's still good. He sets the edge well. He can still make plays. It's not that big a deal, but it kind of still can be as big a deal if a guy is not as good on one side as the other. He doesn't feel as comfortable. So just something to pay attention to. And I think that's probably what Wilkes was talking about today is he has to be able to play the run from that side because we want him to be able to do that all of those sort of idiosyncrasies that come with playing left defensive end as opposed to your your blindside rush in. So some pay attention to those guys were I, – I noticed when they were both practicing, like I said, they weren't there today, but they were there last week. I noticed those two flip-flopping, flip-flopping pretty frequently. So I didn't notice one predominantly coming from one side of the football or the other. But we we probably won't have a good feel for that till. Tennessee comes to Cleveland week one uh, it's they're going to keep that pretty close to the chest and then we're just gonna have to see how they deploy them and um probably yeah we probably will probably see equal equal split I I feel pretty confident though in saying that those two will have played their most in their career in a single season the most snaps on the left side of the football um you know for their career I think it'll be a career high for both of them so yeah. Well, just it's just something to pay attention to. It's not that big a deal, but it is it is worth noting that this is this is what this is what he does, and um, this is what Miles does. This is what Olivier does, and this is where they're comfortable. And this is something new. This is something new that could go wrong. You never know. Like they could both be less less effective from that side, and when they both play over there, it's like, well, dang man, we have two guys who are really good coming off this end. We don't have an answer there. So yeah. you also have you also have you know Jannard Avery, who's been working with the edges 
in both individual periods. They, they, it looks like they pretty specifically are going to have a plan for him and a certain package to bring him off. He's another guy who's really good off the right side. I think he was seventh in the NFL off the right side in pass rush productivity. So he's another guy who could come in off the bench. And you could bring him in and bump Miles down inside or Olivier inside. Both of those guys have had different little sub-package experiences playing tackle defensive tackle and rush situation so that'll be fun they have some good versatile tools Zettel's getting a lot of snaps Chad Thomas actually looks like he's physically in shape and I don't mean that in a mean way like last year he was coming off an injury he didn't really practice much of training camp he just looked out of shape like he didn't look like an effective NFL athlete this year I think he looks like he's in much better shape he's moving well he's been predominantly with the second team defensive ends so they could be using him a little bit more Chris Smith's still there too um they have a good group. I think they have a good group of defensive ends. Defensive tackle, I worry about after that first group when 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 Larry and and um, and Sheldon go off the field and you know the Gerald McCoy buzz is growing and yep. maybe that becomes a thing. Maybe it doesn't become a thing. But you're looking at like Dexter Lawrence, Carl Davis, and Trevon Coley are your are your rotational defensive tackles. So we'll see how um, we'll see how that all shakes out. They are players are drawn to Dexter Lawrence. Take that for what it's worth. He just sort of has that personality that guys really like to be around him. But back back to Wilkes as I'm sort of rambling. It's um, it's uh, uh, they they did a little bit of both. I asked Denzel Ward that question today. Was you know the press man versus off ball stuff? They did both. They were playing a lot of defensive backs. It does look like they're going to be a five defensive backs on the field all the time. Two linebackers, Kirko and and Schobert are your two linebackers, and um, they're going to play five defensive backs. Jermaine Whitehead, who I'm writing on tonight has been on the field with even when Burnett was healthy the week before he was on the field pretty much all the time with the first team group he's going to be that big nickel type hybrid who can play the slot he can play two high safety stuff so he will be a big part of this and it, Wilkes mentioned him in his morning presser as a guy whose leadership he loves Denzel said that he's a guy who communicates really well and as a corner you really love that a guy who talks and and uh and gives you information as plays are coming out of the huddle and as a play is happening so they like him. He was in Green Bay last year. He played a lot of uh, snaps for the first eight weeks. Uh, he sort of picked up toward the middle of the year there. I think he had a rough game against, I think against New England, and then he threw a punch in the New England game, got ejected. I'm doing some research on him now. He got ejected in that game, and then they cut him, and the Browns claimed him, and he didn't really play for Cleveland much because things were pretty set at the safety position at that point. He was sort of learning everything, but yeah, they like him. I did not see it coming. Eric Murray's been working with the second team. That's who they traded for from Kansas city and Sheldrick Redwine's in that second team group. So they, they, they like him and I think they're going to use him way more than people anticipated. And the big news of the day, I should say too, Jordan, is that uh, greedy Williams was your first team corner opposite. Yeah, that was uh that was my favorite tweet of yours. It was just cool to see, um, those names in the same sentence together playing opposite of each other. And that's just something that like I get excited envisioning. So I'm sure it was cool for you to kind of see that happening on the field. Yeah, I think, I think he looks good. He looks fluid. He's got to, he's got to get a better feel for pattern reading and some of that stuff that comes, but yeah, he's, he was your second team or sorry, your first team corner after not getting a ton of first team snaps last week. Who knows? I'll tell you whether after next week, Thursday, if he continues to do that, Terrence Mitchell, who uh, is his main competition outside is is um was it the second team TJ Carey bounced around the first team outside and then he would come inside too like it's just going to be packages if they just want a regular nickel guy who can cover the slot better they'll run Carey out there if they want a bigger guy on the field a safety type body who can also run with tight ends a little bit and play you know at least respectable zone coverage three deep three under stuff they'll bring they'll bring Whitehead onto the field too so I think those those 
two things have been um, defensively big news. So how they're going to use those defensive ends. What does that look like in the past? What is it going to look like this year? And then uh, Jermaine Whitehead being way more involved than I think anybody anticipated. I, I, I'm, I'm at fault here, too. I didn't really take him serious. I didn't really count him as a, a part of this roster, let alone a part of the defense playing like he's playing here early on and what they're saying about him. So that will be fun to watch. And then Greedy Williams, too, is jumping in and playing uh, first-team reps pretty early on in his – in his time with the Browns. So I, I think the defense you got to feel pretty good about right now in terms of what they look like as a, as a whole. I've seen them now. The last week they were sort of whole, and they overwhelm you a little bit uh, with, with talent there at times. And the second team, I should say the two young linebackers, Sione Takitaki and Mac Wilson, have been together. Like they've been stuck at the hip, and they, they, when they go out there and play, that group plays, they play together. Yeah, They don't play them with anybody else. Ardaris Taylor is uh, another – the, the, young, the fellow they signed from Tampa Bay, big-time special teams player, but he will be on the roster. He rotates with their veteran second group, Ray Ray Armstrong's in that second group. So uh, I think that covers it. Yeah, that's most of the guys that are that are getting your snaps, your second corners. Like I said, Terrence Mitchell, Lindsey Pipkins, number 41. He plays opposite Terrence Mitchell, too. So Morgan Burnett will be actively involved in, in the back half of the second. They have good depth, though, man. I, like That's the thing that comes to me is like, when I watch it, I see them with five good corners, and I see them with really good safety depth. And like Sheldrick Redwine is going to be like your bottom of your roster, and that's a really good young player to have at the bottom of your roster and feel good about him as a special teams contributor and feel good about him that if he is the year wears on and he has to step in in a pinch, could he do it? And is he a future player? Like the depth, the the difference is that that somebody like Sheldrick Redwine would have been counted on in years past. Like he's not being counted on. And that only benefits everybody involved, the Browns, and obviously the younger player as well. So good to see. Offense, it's tough. I don't have a I don't have a big picture. I haven't seen the biggest part of this group is the is the four wide receivers being together. David Njoku looks great. He he he. I still I'm not sure he was born on this earth. Same with Miles no, Garrett. Like those are two. They're from they're from elsewhere. David. I mean Miles yeah. Garrett is obviously a specimen, but there's just something about like David Njoku's build that makes it look like like he just like. Like he was born and then he immediately was just in the weight room. Like he's just been yeah. like, look like that his whole life. It's insane. And like he jogs out on the practice field and he runs in this really weird, like yeah. graceful way. Like he like sort of floats and bounces. Like he just, he's good. He's only, he's not even, he's not even 23. He's I don't so think. I don't think he turns 23. Yeah. He's, he's still ridiculously young and he had a nice catch on the sideline on an, on a deep corner route and he's going to be good. They're going to be good. The 11 personnel stuff is very real. Nick Chubb looks like a bigger version of Nick Chubb from last year. Like, it's all there. All of it is there. I think everybody should be more than excited. This is not a finished picture yet. They could still add pieces, whether it's Gerald McCoy or players who get cut. Or bear in mind, they signed Michael Kendricks in the early June of last year. So like things sh- will shake around. Like they they will they will they will. This is not the final roster that we will see. But this roster is very real. It is very talented, and I've thought that without even seeing the best one of the best wide receivers in the game up close and personal and um yeah it's just it's good it's good i think that the vibe is good the team looks i mean freddie really gets after him i know freddie's like a golly g guy in press conferences but he he coaches hard man he coaches them with you know with vigor he holds guys very accountable for mental mistakes that is what i've seen him get heated about the most in the two practices we've been to monken's very cerebral very quiet and approach sort of talking guys through things Freddie is sort of the bad cop in this scenario. Like if you saw Freddie on the field talking the way he's talking, you didn't see him talk much as a running back coach because this kind of just stay out of the way type of thing. You know, you take your guys and do your thing. But 
yeah, when when the offense is doing things or there's something going on or somebody's messing up, like he's on top of him and he's you know the language is R-rated, so he's going after him. He's he's big on the accountability stuff. I've liked Wilkes' approach. He's been he's been not the <laughs> You know, Greg Williams was sort of everybody look at me, and that's just his person. I don't. Yeah. I, that's not. It's not nefarious, but like that's just like his. I'm gonna make a scene out here, and everybody's gonna hear me talk. Like that's not Wilkes' approach. Like his his is like do your job, do your job, do it for the team, and that that approach. I, I like how he feels. I like how Holcomb coaches his group too. And I'll tell you what, Tasha Poy has a real Brock Lesnar look about him. If 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 I was on the field today. And Tasha Poy's the new defensive line coach. He was Alabama's DC. And mm-hmm. I looked quickly to my left. I could have swore it was Brock Lesnar. Like that guy <laughs> looks just like him, but nah. I mean, he he gets after the defensive line. He coaches them really hard. And um, I like him. I like the way his approaches. Guys seem to respond to him well. Uh, the way he kind of gets after them. It's not getting after them in a, in a mean way, but it's just like getting after them about practicing hard and doing drills hard. And when you're in, you're going 100%. And I like that James Campen much different too than Bob Wiley. Just uh, less. Um, he he's sort of quite an approach too. Just very. They do a ton of technique hand placement work. And Joel Batonio touched about uh, about that in his in his few minutes at the press conference today. It's just a really. It's a ton of hand fighting. How they get set. How they base into their first few steps. I I'm not I'm not here to say Bob Wiley wasn't doing those things because I probably wasn't paying as much attention, but. I just noticed that, like when the offensive line goes away during special teams or whatever, that those guys are really, really harping on the minor things that are important still, like how their kick step looks, how their hand placement looks, how they're fighting with their hands when somebody gets their hands in a different place. So all of those things are good to see, and, and I think Joel touched on that too. So really good two days of OTAs. The kicking battle, I think, seems to be neck and neck. I haven't really noticed much of a difference from either of them. I do know Cybert booms the ball in kickoffs, but so does Greg Joseph. Uh, it's just going to have to be who makes the most and is who the most consistent. And I pro- That prob- that battle, to be honest, is probably won on, in the preseason in games. I think they'll kick as many times as they can in games to get a feel for those two, but you know, you take a guy in the fifth round. I imagine he has every leg up he could possibly. No pun intended, there, but every every opportunity to make that team and do that job. Then, Greg Joseph. So we'll see. That's what that. But that's what I got in a couple of days worth of OTAs. We'll get up there Thursday next week. They they go. I'm not sure who will be there, who won't be there. You never really know. You just kind of show up. And and I should mention too that Duke has not been there either. Um, yeah, Duke I is. Uh, I think Duke might just quit football to become a professional chef. I don't know. He might just that might just be his <laughs> his path. The only thing he puts on his Instagram now is um, is him making food. So um, yeah, it's it'll be interesting to see what happens with Duke. I think obviously he's made his feelings known. Um, and I think his total absence, uh, really, from from not only OTAs but just I don't know any any media, any public remarks, any anything like makes it fairly clear that he's probably uh, once they signed Kareem Hunt, he didn't feel like his role was going to um, expand at all to what he wanted. But I I do think you know as we kind of wrap this up and um, really great stuff uh, again, Jake, and make sure you're following Jake for Jake underscore Burns 18. So, you know, when he's back out there next Thursday, he's, uh, you can kind of go along with him as he's running through OTAs and giving you his kind of real time observations. But I, I think a theme, especially with the Browns on both sides of the ball, because I know today you mentioned, obviously there was a lack of receivers there today, but you know, Rashard Higgins getting some snaps in the slot and, um, you can move Callaway around, you can move Higgins around, you can move Jarvis Landry around. Like they just have guys that, and even Odell Beckham Jr. who, you know, worked out of the slot, um, 
for for periods of time in New York. Like you, you just have versatility, especially Kareem Hunt. We saw Nick Chubb, who you know wasn't exactly known as a guy who can catch the ball out of the backfield, or that wasn't his. Um, his biggest kind of sort of skill. And we, we saw obviously that crazy catch he had against Cincinnati and, and he did a little bit of work there too, but there's versatility on offense. And then the stuff you mentioned on defense, just like, you know, being able to move Olivier Vernon and Miles Garrett around and, and move other guys around on the line. And then you have all these, this DB depth at safety and corner. And um, they just are going to have the ability to kind of do a lot of different things and move guys in different positions on each side of the ball. And I think that's just like really exciting. Obviously certain players, in certain positions are going to need work, like you mentioned, and guys are going to have to get used to maybe doing more from certain positions that are that they haven't been used to um, this, thus far in their career. But I think the excitement and the talent level is such that guys aren't going to have an issue with it, um, and they're going to be able to kind of adapt a little bit. And uh, I think that's really exciting, and I, I definitely think that's sort of a theme that the Browns have have tried to build. Not only, especially speed in the secondary with, with defensively, but then just versatility, both offensively and defensively. And I think that's like a, a good insight into how this coaching staff, I think, sort of understands the modern NFL and sort of understands where it's going. And I think as a fan, um, that has to be pretty exciting, just knowing that they seem to have their finger on the pulse of like what makes a NFL team good uh, on both sides of the ball. Yeah, they do, and 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 you know if they add if they add Gerald McCoy and they add yeah. a, a and they, they they bring in a healthy, a healthy minded and and a guy who's ready to contribute any way he can, Duke Johnson, like mandatory minicamp is the June fourth through the sixth. I think we get to be able to be there for all of that. And they've been so, and they've been adamant too, Jacob. I mean, the coaching staff has about like we're not trading Duke Johnson. Like he, we want to use him on this football team. So that that's going to be a really interesting storyline to sort of follow, just about like where he is mentally with the team. But it seems like between Dorsey and Freddie Kitchens, like they ha- at least publicly have put up the front that like we're like we expect him to be on this football team. So that, that'll be interesting to watch. Yeah. And what that all looks like, because it's, we're seeing the, you know, the elements of Monken and kitchens coming together and a lot of wide receivers on the field. I have not seen a ton of tight ends on the field altogether. Doesn't mean they're not going to use a lot of that. Like they did last year, like Demetrius Harris, a very good player. Um, But yeah, like I, I just noticed that it looks this way. They're using a lot of wide receivers how does it all look when it comes together? Like, is that is that offensive group adding another really good running back, pass catcher, dual threat player, and then adding those, getting Jarvis out there, getting Odell out there, getting Callaway and Higgins all on the field at the same time? Is that as like, holy cow, this group is ridiculous as you think it will be? So that'll be fun. And um, yeah, I would say... This stuff right now is just sort of the appetizer. The The main course will be there June 4th through the 6th when it is mandatory. So if somebody's not there for a mandatory minicamp, that's a story. Like yeah. that is a real thing. That is a problem that results in fines. So that is when I keep telling people, don't worry about OTAs because I really, you know, you, they're, they're just, they're voluntary and it's great. And then coaches take it serious and the guys who are trying to take, make the roster take it serious and, um, that's fine, but like when the word mandatory is attached to it, that's when we'll really start watching it, and we'll see if it looks as good in person as we uh, as we think it as we think it could. And like we said, they add a couple pieces. You know, if they can add Joe McCoy, it'll it'll be. I think it, I, I just, it seems like there's a lot of people that don't want the Browns to be as good as what they could be. So it'll be very fascinating to watch what that big picture thing looks like, and if it's sort of as holy cow, these guys are all in Cleveland at the same time, sort of thing. So it'll be fun. Some good stuff coming up. We'll have. 
we'll have another uh, one of these uh, on my end. I'll, I'll, I'll talk about OTAs next week. And then, yeah, mini camp. I'm going to try to go up to, to all three days as, as best I can and, and give you guys a full report of what that looks like. Then after mini camp, it's really off. We're off until training camp. That's late July. So um, that's the best chance we have to really get a preview of what this group will look like when they reconvene. And it's really uh, it's really football season. So Yeah, yeah it's, uh, it's, it's going to sneak up on us. And uh, summer will sort of get started here before we know it. And, uh, yeah, I, I cannot wait to sort of see them – fully operational and running, you know, seven on sevens and 11 on 11s and, and all of that. That's going to be, um, that'll be the good stuff and, uh, that will be really enjoyable. So, um, yeah, man, like I said at the beginning, although it can seem sometimes like the off season can, can drag on with, with nothing happening. That has certainly not been the case, uh, with Cleveland this year from the Odell trade to now the announcement of the NFL draft coming to Cleveland 2021, and now you've got OTAs and, like you said, mini camp in, in early June, and then some time off, and it'll be training camp, and the, and the storylines will, will only continue. So, you know, Jake and I will uh, continue to be here with both the rebuild and Browns film breakdown and more crossover stuff from us. So, uh, continue to follow us both on Twitter at Clevezerm, at Jake underscore Burns 18. And, uh, you know, if you're a fan of, of the NFL in general or you want to get hip to what's going on in some other cities, other markets, Blue Wire has all of that stuff underneath their umbrella. So um, you can go to art19.com slash bluewire or just search bluewire on iTunes, Spotify, wherever you get your podcasts and uh, and check all of those out. Lots of good podcasts covering a lot of different NFL teams. So um, check all of those out. Jake, man, thanks for hopping on with me and uh, we'll look forward to your report next week from OTAs and, and what you've seen there. And uh, yeah, man, we will uh, we'll link up again soon. Always my pleasure, brother. All right, dude, I will, uh, I will talk to you later. All right, man. Okay, excited, guys, to bring in Trevor Sikama. Um, you, you, uh, I wouldn't imagine many Browns fans pay all too close attention to what goes on down in Tampa Bay land, but our, our, our attention has shifted down uh, that way due to the recent releasing of Jeremy McCoy. So Trevor does... Uh, beat reporting work for Pewter Report, and then he's uh, a draft analyst for Draft Network, as you're all familiar with the Draft Network. So, Trevor, I'm excited to have you on, man. Talk a little, McCoy. How you doing today? Yeah, Jake. Good to be with you, man. It's an interesting, uh, very interesting topic that we have right here, talking about this Gerald McCoy situation. So, yeah, I'm excited to talk. Yeah, yeah. So, I, I figure we loaned you, we we gave you Carl Nassib. It was a, it was, it was a gift that we that we landed <laughs> right in Tampa Bay's lap. Um, which is a hot point of contention, just sort of letting him walk. Nah, I'm just kidding. He's a good. He's a good dude. It seems like he's a. He, I always enjoyed the interviews and uh, having conversations with him. So I'm glad he's doing well down there for you guys. But on the flip side, um, the Browns, and I'm going to ask you about another player too. I didn't prep you for this, so I'll, I'll come back to this one a little bit. But McCoy, let's talk McCoy first. Um, so give me the skinny as you know it, Trevor, of why. I think everybody thinks it's the money, and that might be the case too. But it seems like the player is still good too. So with the new staff, and you, you know, J.C. Pierre Paul has the, the the unfortunate car accident, which has put his season in jeopardy. D line depth seems like it might be a concern. Why is it necessary to let go of a? Uh, I would say a pretty much a franchise staple, right? One of the better players over the past seven years, right? Yeah, no, I think no question about that. Uh, first of all, yeah, if you guys end up getting McCoy, then it's it's like one of those trades for Nassib where free agency was involved in it was just like a player to be named later. So yeah, it would all work right. out if, uh, if McCoy ends up going to Cleveland. But it's been a really interesting situation, and it's tough because 
I think still a lot of the truth in this matter is behind closed doors. This is stuff that we're going to kind of figure out as years go on. You know, we might be able to get a guy who is maybe inside the building, close to situations, you know, let something slip and we figure out what might have happened because on the surface level, yeah, I mean, let's let's look at the facts here. McCoy is on the other side of 30. Um, he's over that hill. And we know that especially for defensive linemen, that age 30 is not really a forgiving time once you get too far after that. So the worth and the value on a guy, uh, it has a tendency to go downhill quickly. Now, McCoy's been really good, but he's set up to get paid $13 million this year. And that was the big point of contention is, is he worth that $13 million? This is a guy who's never had double-digit sacks for the Buccaneers nine years, granted. He hasn't had a lot of help either next to him or behind him on his defenses, basically for his entire tenure in Tampa Bay. So it's hard to blame him too much there. But you wonder just how much individual impact he had on the team. And I think when it comes to his release, they wondered that going into this new defense, the new defensive coordinator Todd Bowles is bringing in under the leadership of Bruce Arians. And we'll get to that in a second. But, you know, they just wondered what kind of return on investment they were getting because he was owed $13 million this year. I think 12.8 next year and then something like 12.2 maybe the year after that. So it's not like it got any easier. It's not like, hey, if we just make it work with McCoy's contract this year, we get a little bit of relief over the next two years uh, as his contract starts to expire. No, no, no. Like They'd be paying this guy close to 12, 13 million for the next two years. That was something that I think was hard for them to swallow, hard for them to justify because on the surface level, this guy, I, I mean – He's had a pretty good career, all things considered. He's a six-time Pro Bowler, three-time All-Pro guy. Um, in terms of off the field, he's had a Walter Walter Payton Man of the Year nomination. He's third in the franchise history in sacks, really a lot of just because of longevity. And so he still has the talent. I think he's still got some juice, and he thinks he's got some juice as well. Um, it just came down to the justification of that number. Was he worth that $13 million? And I don't think that he was. And I think that was mainly evident by the fact that the Bucks actively tried to trade this guy for the last two months and did not get a single suitor. Now, they tried to do this before the draft, during the draft, and after the draft. And they could not find anybody that would basically give them anything worth a damn that would be justified of, of them taking on his current contract. So I'm pretty sure there were plenty of teams in the NFL who were interested in Gerald McCoy, but not at that that number so they they knew that the bucks were eventually going to cut him and they said to themselves we're not going to give you a draft asset just to take on a bad contract we'll let you guys cut him and we'll negotiate our own contract with him when the time comes i think that's the situation we're in here yeah so does it does it seem to you like he is um is he a winning above all else right now point in his career or do you feel like Maybe from covering him, you, you could get a feel here. Is, is it a money situation for him in a little bit of a two, three years? Sort of because it seemed like the Browns have the ability to probably only do a one-year deal. Um, you know, the, the good part for Cleveland is they can be that. And really Indianapolis, too. I don't know how serious Indy is. They, they, they're on the other end of the uh, spectrum, too. But they, it seems like those teams both can offer at least a really good hope of winning and a, a, a valuable contract, too. Like, if you look at the Rams or you look at New England, seems like the money wouldn't be really well there, but you're obviously going to two highly competitive teams. So I just, I mean, I, you might not have any insight there, but just sort of what does he covet? Has he always been a winning above all else kind of guy? 
Well, I think that Gerald McCoy is a guy who wants to win. His, his kind of you know, his attitude in Tampa has been the thing that a lot of people have questioned over the years because this is a guy who, you know, they're used to the days of Warren Sapp, right? I mean, Warren, it, it's really hard coming up behind Sapp's shadow in Tampa Bay playing the exact same position when you're not like Sapp because Sapp was an a-hole, man. I mean, this guy, Sapp was a jerk to a lot of people. And he was a mean cuss. But you know what? He was a Hall of Famer. He won in the Super Bowl. You know, he's one of the best players in franchise history. And so when you have to try to, you know, and McCoy is not like that, just personality-wise. He's a much more of of a nicer dude. Not to say that he can't flip a switch and play hard and play well. He can. He's a very talented dude. But he never had that super mean streak. And so personality, I think, goes a lot into why – I think the fans, you, you're seeing a lot of fans split on, on opinions of McCoy leaving because it honestly should be um, almost kind of a remembering the happy times with McCoy, what he's done for this team over the last nine years. And you said you've got a lot of fans who are like, yeah, you know, get him out of here because he didn't have that killer instinct, that killer mentality. Not everybody does. And so when you ask a question like, hey, what's his mentality for the rest of his career? I think all of that kind of goes into play into what team he might ultimately choose. But to your specific question, I think that he is going to be going to a team and prioritizing a team that's going to win. He knows that he's only got three or four years left. It's probably going to be a series of one-year deals here and there. Might get a two-year deal right off the bat here. I'm not sure. Dominican Suze hasn't been able to get some long-term deals in a while, so I've got to think that that's probably the same situation with McCoy. It's probably going to end up being a one-year thing. And he's probably just going to have to bounce around and see which teams he can stick with and a team that he's got a chance to win a Super Bowl with because that's, I think, ultimately his goal and what he's going to be trying to do. There was some talk that, hey, you know, he's going to sign in the NFC South so he could play the Bucks every uh, two times a year. I don't know. He could, the Falcons and the Saints are two options for him, but I don't think it's limited to just the NFC South. That's like a vengeance thing against the Buccaneers. He is going to look at all of his situations and assess where he might be able to best be a guy who can help a team who already has a roster around where he would be coming in to go try and win a Super Bowl. So I do think that that's probably the main thing in his mind right now. He's made plenty of money over his career. Certainly he's going to try and get as much as he can, as every athlete does. But I ultimately think that winning and the prospects of winning a potential Super Bowl are really high on his list of where he's going to choose to go. Yeah, that's good insight. I think the Browns can offer, um, you know, they're not immediate Super Bowl contenders, but they're, you know, they're at least in trending in that direction is if we're being realistic here. So they can offer a little bit of both, which is good for the Brown side. Is, 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 is McCoy a little bit more three technique than one? What's he play predominantly? Yeah, so, and, you know, that kind of brings into the, the, the equation of why he was released. McCoy's just been a true three tech basically his entire career. He's been mm-hmm. that pass rushing inferior defensive lineman throughout basically every single defensive coordinator that's come through Tampa Bay, which has been numerous since 2010 when he got to Tampa Bay. But Todd Bowles coming in this year and Bruce Arians as well, their defensive philosophies are a little bit different. They weren't about to emphasize their defense around McCoy like it had been done over the last nine years. They run a more multiple front, um, more three, four sets, more two gapping. uh, And that's just not really McCoy's style. And so you know, I, I was kind of looking at this situation as I was going back on the timeline of everything. I mean, Gerald McCoy, Bruce Arians hadn't even taken the job yet. And Gerald McCoy was 
so nostalgic after his last game, saying that he he's enjoyed his time in Tampa and that uh, he's loved his time being a Buccaneer and whatever happened, you know, he, he was given the kind of like sentimental, you know, whatever happens, happens, but I've loved everything about being here. And it's like, dude, you got three years left on your contract. What's up? Like, why are <laughs> yeah. you talking? Well, like, why are you talking like this? And then Bruce Arians gets hired on the eighth. Um, at the owners' meetings, he was basically saying, "Yeah, we're not sure if McCoy loves football. All this kinds of stuff." And he was being really harsh about basically a franchise legend. And then all the while, basically on February first, we have an insider, J.C. Cornell, who works over at the Draft Network with me. He's had the inside beat on what's been happening at, at one buck place, and he said the Bucks we're going to move on from Jerry McCoy on February first. All of that had to make me think that Bruce Arians, as he was thinking about coming back to coach the Buccaneers in like late November, early December, he basically made up his mind. He said, yeah, Jerry McCoy's not going to be a part of this football team if I come coach it. We're just, we're going to move on from it uh, for whatever reason. Either they really wanted his cap number, they had their eyes set on somebody else they wanted to get on the team, or they just didn't think that McCoy fit the scheme, which goes back to your uh, your ultimate question that you asked. And I wonder if that's it. Unfortunately, I'll never know because... I won't know what McCoy is like in this Todd Bowles scheme. I won't know where they're going to use him. But they very much use more three-down linemen in what Todd Bowles tries to do, whereas McCoy has been a part of a defensive line that's used four-down linemen, and he's been the three-tech, the one-gap pass rush penetrator more than anything else. So that is certainly his wheelhouse, getting upfield, that great first step that he has. Um, being a pass rusher, being that three-tech player. That's what he does in, in predominantly a four-down lineman scheme, or at least that's what he's done in the past. And I'm just not sure how much we were going to see that in Tampa Bay under Todd Bowles, and perhaps that's ultimately why they made the call that he is not worth that $13 million to them. Yeah, it seems like the Browns signed Sheldon Richardson. Larry Ogunjobi plays the predominantly the one, and Shade knows all that stuff in the interior for him, and signed Sheldon Richardson, so maybe they uh... – you know, maybe they feel like they can supplement him and, and McCoy and, and sort of keep everybody fresh. And McCoy does have one tech experience. Yeah. All those guys can shift in now. So, yeah, it would make sense for the Browns. And if the money's right and all that's right, I think that they'll really attempt to do it because they were one of the few that were sort of, uh, at least in some circles, were, were affiliated with Tampa Bay trying to maybe work a deal there. So I think that's why a lot of Browns fans feel optimistic about it. But that that's great. Those are good insights into the entire situation, Trevor. I really appreciate that. Um, I do have one more question for you. Um, are Darius Taylor, who the Browns signed out of Tampa Bay, any insights on him as a player? I've been at OTAs. They've been having him kind of second unit, but it seems like a special teams ace. Is that what they're getting here? Yeah. Our Darius, Darius is a great guy, man. We, we, we did a couple events with him, uh, first and foremost. He's an awesome dude. He's a really great guy. He's a total effort player. Um, he was forced into some starting roles last year because the Bucks were so beat up at linebacker. So he does have some starting experience both playing as, I believe, a Sam and, and, and a Mike. He was actually playing Mike for a little bit with the green dot on his helmet making the calls for mm-hmm. some experience last year. He's predominantly a special teams guy. Yes, he's a, more of a, a, a backup linebacker who's going to give you a lot of effort at special teams. But he does have some starting experience because of last year. And so if you got to have a reserve linebacker, a guy that kind of be waiting in the wings, um, in case somebody goes down, Adarius is a good—he's a good one to have. Well, good stuff, Trevor. I appreciate you, man. You guys can find him at Tampa Bay Trey T R E there on Twitter. Um, not just going to give you Tampa Bay insights, but it's going to give you uh, quality draft insights too. I know how much Browns fans care about the draft all year. As we're pumped, Trevor, the draft is coming to Cleveland, man. We are—we are, we are excited am, about I, that. 
I am so excited that Cleveland got the draft because I'm going to be there for it with the Draft Network, and I know Cleveland fans are crazy. So I am <laughs> so excited. Uh, I'm excited for Vegas already, but I'm even looking to the future to Cleveland. That's going to be a blast with Cleveland hosting the draft. Hell yeah, man. We'll have to link up at that point. So, um, yeah, we'll, we'll, we'll probably have Trevor on again at some point. Uh, I'm sure something will rise here. We, unfortunately, the Browns don't play Tampa, but we'll get him on again maybe draft season next year and, and, and get some more insights from him. Trevor, thanks for taking a minute here, man. Of course, Jake. Anytime. All right, guys, we appreciate it. We will be back uh, next week after OTAs, after Thursday's OTAs. We'll give you more, some more insights going into the mandatory minicamp that is June 4th through the 6th. Always appreciate any feedback on iTunes, uh, Twitter. Anytime you guys want something discussed, just let me know. Keep us in the loop. And as usual, guys, until next time, go Browns. Sugar Ray Leonard. Roberto Duran, Marvelous Marvin Hagler, and Thomas Hearns. Legends, whose four-way rivalry defined one of the greatest eras in boxing history. Relive their decade of dominance in the new Showtime sports documentary, The Kings, a four-part series premiering Sunday, June 6th, only on Showtime.